Good morning, everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're glad to have you with us this morning. We're going to get started with some worship, so why don't we all stand?
Heaven shouts at the sound of His holy name. 
Would you be praying with me? Father God, thanks for your blessing, allowing us to worship you here at La Hoyo Community Church, where we, most of us go home without worrying about food and clothing. We know you lead us here for a reason. We know you would never let us sit and rest without using the gift that you give us. Even in this America's finest city, we still see challenges, including inflection, water and power shortage, social and mental health problems, as well as ongoing epidemics. So please let your words flowing through, uh, flow through our minds. Let us be your army. Guide us to do what we should do to fulfill your will and glorify your power and grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to uh, La Jolla Community Church. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, just a quick announcement. On your way inside, you should have received a bulletin on which we have a connect card and a prayer card. If you're joining us for the first time today, um, I'd invite you to fill out the connect card. Uh, let us know you're here. We can get you connected into the church. Also, uh, we'd invite you to fill out the prayer card as well so that we can pray for you during the week. After the service, you can uh, take these uh, prayer cards and connect cards along with any tithes and offerings. Um, bring them right outside the door to the foyer inside the boxes. You can drop them off. And with that, um, we'll have Scott lead us in a message. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, we just got back from Hawaii. Don't want to make you jealous, but we did. We went to the best place in the world, Maui, and it was, a, it was truly a, a, just a perfect trip. My dad and his wife invited us, and uh, all expenses paid, so anything that's happening inside you, I just want to recognize that's the start of the message, FOMO. Didn't something just happen to you a little bit? When I hear about other people, I was in, in Maui on this afternoon after taking a, a nap I mean, I never take naps. I was in Hawaii. I was taking a nap, and the smells of Hawaii, if you've been there, you know the smell of Hawaii, the feeling, the waves. And I open up Instagram, and I'm scrolling through, and I see a friend 
that's on a trip in Lake Tahoe. And I think to myself, man, why can't we go to Tahoe? <laughs> I mean, FOMO does such weird things to you. This idea that I'm envious of someone else. I'm missing out on an experience. I'm missing out on what someone else has. Uh, we, were, we went from Maui to Waikiki, which is a huge letdown, from like just the, the vibes of Maui and then just the intensity of Waikiki and Honolulu and sirens and, and our kids enjoyed it because there were shops and, and we were uh, walking through and our, my kids found this store. It's a Crocs store, not, <laughs> not crap store. It's a Crocs. It's uh, the shoes. There's like kind of clog looking things made of rubber. And on the sign, this big sign said, if you buy two, you get two free. And so for like 24 hours, my kids are just, we got to go get the Crocs. We got to get, we got to go get Crocs. And it then became, when we got in there, it was, okay, so we paying for three pairs, or we're getting three pairs, three kids. Uh, it's either my wife or I gets Crocs, like free Crocs. So this idea of missing out, I was kind of just grumpy in the front of the store, like, let's go, let's go. This is not why we came to Hawaii, is to shop for Crocs. And, and then my wife comes over, she says, you can get a free pair I mean, you're already paying for it. And all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, I don't want to miss out on Crocs. And that's how messed up FOMO can be, this fear of missing out. I almost bought Crocs. Like, that's, that's how bad it went. Actually, I saw these are Crocs. I got these shoes. These are free for me, unlike normal Crocs. I was like, okay, I can wear these, and they're very, very comfortable. Uh, no offense if uh, you like Crocs. <laughs> Maybe, actually, you should be offended if you wear Crocs. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but... While we're on that topic of missing out, just the idea that our hearts, we, we have these experiences or watch other people have experiences and, and something happens to us. I know my, my mom, who was not on this trip, as I mentioned, it was my dad and his wife who took us. Uh, my mom has my sister and I on the little GPS on our phones, our iPhones. I, I made it for her so I could follow where she is and she can follow where I am and and there's certainly been a, a practical issue for that a few times, and I'm trying to find out where she is in the mall. <laughs> I'm trying to meet her up for lunch. And I said, no worries, Mom, I know where you are. I'll come get you. But what uh, my sister told me uh, halfway through the trip, she said, Mom keeps following you while you're in Hawaii with her ex-husband and his new wife. And just that I didn't ask her about it, but I can imagine some of the feelings that come up when you're missing out on this experience that other people are having. Uh, a few days ago, I've got two best friends, a best friend from high school, a best friend from college, and one is in Orange County, one is in San Diego, separate lives, but I introduced the two of them a couple years ago, and uh, I was in the car and making this kind of series of phone calls, kind of going through my list of who do I need to return calls to, who do I need to reach out to, and I first call a college friend, because he had called me the day before, and uh, no answer, and he writes back, texts, sorry, I'm on the phone, I'll call you later. And then I'm, okay, the next guy on the list is the high school best friend. I call him, and no answer, same sort of thing. Hey, I'll call you back. And then a couple minutes later, college friend texts me and says, by the way, I'm on the phone with Nick. So two best friends talking to each other, and I'm like, what the heck? I mean, you guys are friends now? That's not how it's supposed to happen. You're supposed to call me. Uh, this idea that missing out, I, I want you to also consider, and here's the, the context of where we're going this morning, I want you to know that you actually are missing out. <laughs> you and I are both missing out on more. See, we're missing out on a phone call. <laughs> we're missing out. Who is it? Let's answer. <laughs> it's perfect timing. <laughs> we're missing out on more of God. 
we're missing out on growth. We're missing out on learning about who God is. We're missing out on who we could be. And I want you to know, and I'll say this a couple times, like you're, you're really, really who you are. You're really loved. God, God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. And, not a but, and God really wishes you would grow some more. God really wants you to learn more about him. So God loves you. I mean, you're great. And, and who you are, and, and regardless of what you've done or haven't done or been through or haven't been through, God loves you, sees you, and loves you, and wants you to grow. So this morning, we're going to talk about what growth looks like. What is our process of growth? What is the invitation for us to grow and to learn? How does it all work? How does Jesus do it as our master teacher? And then, I, I don't know, something might come up for you this morning as you leave here, I hope, actually, that there's some specific thing that you feel pressure about. You feel some healthy anxiety for. You feel a burden to grow in a particular area because you, no matter how old you are, you are not done yet. So let's pray. God, uh, uh, thank you. that That's true. We are not done yet. And that the life that you have for us and the reason we come here and, and worship together is not because we believe a set of things and that's it. So that when we die, we might go somewhere or have some extra things. But God, that here and now, there's, there's an opportunity to be restored into who we're supposed to be. So I pray this morning, Spirit of God, that you would come and speak to each of us individually with grace and truth. With the grace that we are loved by you and the truth that we have more to grow, more to learn, more to be changed and transformed. So we need your help for that. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you uh, got your Bibles, we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture. It's in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and it's a, it's a short story. And it's, it's uh, one of the stories, as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that can almost be a, an in-between story. Each one of the Gospel writers is telling this more or less chronology of Jesus' life. And this is one of the stories, it's almost on the way somewhere else, uh, in between these big miraculous moments uh, and, and here is the story. It says this, well, one day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and he gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and heal all diseases. And then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said this to them, take nothing for your journey. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses you, it refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. So uh, I just want to walk us through a little bit of this story and try to, if we can, get into the perspective, not this narrator uh, perspective that we read it through, where you're just kind of, oh, that's interesting. Jesus sent them out, and there's this natural progression of these 12 disciples. But I would love if we could try to get in the perspective and be one of the 12 disciples. Now, they've been called as disciples to Jesus as a rabbi, and what that meant for them was maybe unique to us. I, I don't know if any of us were ever in a, in a really intense apprentice program. Uh, some people have. Some people have kids who've been through apprentice programs. And apprenticeships, they're very deliberate and very specific. Uh, you are going to be, have a really clear and high expectations in this role to learn what I do and how to do it. And that's really the, the system of education that, that Jesus had brought these disciples into. 
Uh, to be a disciple of a rabbi meant that there were really clear high expectations. It was a huge privilege to be a disciple of a rabbi. And the entire project, the thing that you signed up for, was to so, if you're a disciple, is to so understand the rabbi that you followed that you would naturally be like him. That you would have the ability to share his unique perspective. You would so think the same way, same thoughts, that you would just, it would just come out of you. And that was the whole multiplicative process of a rabbi. I'm going to pick disciples that have the potential and the capacity to be like me. There were boys in the education system that would be weeded out if they had capacity, intellectual capacity, really, intellectual capacity to understand complex ideas. And if you couldn't, at the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you'd be weeded out and you would go, you would go home, really, effectively go home and start studying the trade of your family, of your father. But those who did have intellectual capacity, you might have the opportunity to be interviewed and selected to be a disciple of a rabbi. And it wasn't just sit in class like we might think, or at least our education system by and large is sit in rows and listen to someone up front. It wasn't like that. To be a disciple of a rabbi meant you would actually be with them all the time. Because it wasn't just their message that you want to understand, it was them that you wanted to get. There's this bizarre quote from Josephus, who was an ancient historian to the time of Jesus, and he noted that disciples of a particular rabbi would even follow the rabbi into the restroom, into the bathroom, because they wanted to, they were so intent to learn everything about who this man was and how he thought and how he lived and how he acted. They wanted to know every single granular detail of what he was like, even in private moments. That was the whole idea to be a disciple. It wasn't learn some stuff and take a quiz, and now you're certified like some of us do in professional situations, or I'm, as a soccer coach, I'm supposed to do concussion protocol training, which means I got to watch a series of these videos in the background while I'm working, and then take a little test to see if I pass so that I can take care of kids with concussions. Don't worry, I've taken it seven times. That's a lot of how we think about education. That is not the education system. Jesus had selected these 12 disciples because they had the capacity to become just like him. Think about that. He picked people that he saw, and by the way, he's got the Spirit of God in him, so he sees these 12 ordinary men, and you've seen the stories of who they were and how they got selected. He looked at them and said, you have the capacity not just to learn the things that I know, but to become just like me. And the whole project, the whole project of the kingdom of God coming to earth is through the 12 of you growing and learning to be just like me. That's the process. So they'd been doing it. And we don't know, the the, uh, archaeologists and and theologians try to to really nail down how long were the disciples with Jesus. We we generally know it's about three years based on the different festivals that he went to and and the Jewish calendar. We don't know in in Luke chapter 9 how long these disciples, these young men, have been around Jesus. It's certainly been more than a few days. It's certainly probably been more than a few weeks or months. And they had seen, if you look back in Luke, they'd seen and participated in quite a few miraculous moments. They've been a part of listening to Jesus teach in the synagogue. So they've been listening, taking notes. They've been sitting there and watching how he interacts with people who are uh, ill or sick or diseased. Jesus interacts with them, and they're right there. They're right there watching, listening, feeling things, seeing things, watching, uh, participating, and they're not in the front chair like Jesus, but they're there. 
They're seeing him confront evil. They're seeing him, uh, I think, uh, right after this, he's going to feed 5,000 people. So they're part of these miraculous moments. And here is the moment when it all turns. This is a key, key moment in the development of the disciples. He calls them together, and he says, you all are going to go out two by two and go do all the stuff that I've been doing. Now, okay, so let's try to get into the huddle of the disciples or the whispering, or if they had text to each other, a little text thread of the disciples' text thread. Hey, Peter's like, what did he just say? And John's like, I don't know. This doesn't make sense. And Matthew's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about? And there had to, and doesn't capture that. We don't capture this story. All we see is they went out and did it. But there has to, wouldn't you? Have you ever been in a work scenario where someone says, hey, you're up. You give the presentation. I remember early on when I started youth schools with two guys from La Jolla Community Church, Greg Emimoto and Sean Parr, these two guys that were 20-something years older than me, very experienced in business. I'd done 10 years of college ministry, and now they picked me to lead this new company. And there's this one, uh, this is way back before Zoom, a conference call. Remember those? A conference call where I was given the responsibility to give this pitch to a private equity firm to try to raise venture capital. I, did it, I had to Google that. Didn't know, I knew nada, nothing. And uh, I remember Greg, one of the guys, turns to me and says, or on the phone, he goes, all right, Scotty, you're up. I'm up, up for what? I don't know what this is. And I just literally fumbled. I, maybe you've had that experience where you just absolutely blow something. I mean, I'm just, I'm asking questions. I'm, I'm filling in the blanks. I'm going in here and there. The chronology is all over the place. I have no clear ask whatsoever. There's no, I mean, now I know how the flow of a pitch and the pitch deck and all that stuff, I can do that. But back then, I had no clue. It is a terrible feeling to be asked to do something that you don't know how to do. It's the worst. When I coached baseball, I it took me a couple years to realize uh, one day I was on the field and these boys were six and seven years old and this is slightly above t-ball so now there's a pitching machine it's coming at them and there's this one moment and I'm sitting there and I was kind of in the outfield watching and you know there's 10 or 11 boys on our team 10 or 11 on their team there's three coaches per team six adults and then you have add to that the parents and guess what we're all doing we are all yelling instructions at these boys and if you think about baseball instructions, it's absurd. Squash the bug. <laughs> Turn two. Uh, uh, make the tag. Head towards first. All these convoluted, complex things. And I watched some of the boys, if you've ever seen little kid baseball, freeze or get mad or cry. And it just occurred to me, we are not doing what Jesus did. We are not developing them properly, and it changed everything the way I coached. We're going to break down all this coded language. We're not going to use the coded language until the end of the year. When I say, get in the ready position, I'm going to change that to say, get your glove dirty. That's different, isn't it? Okay, glove, dirt, now I'm going to put it down there. That's different than saying, all right, let's be ready. Come on, let's be ready. You ready? That's just, it's a different vibe. Now, it is also a terrible feeling, some of you have this often at work, to have the ability to do something, but no authority to do it. Sometimes we're in situations, I've been in that in, in churches a few times, where I'm sitting there and I'm like uh, listening to a sermon, I'm like, oh, I mean, I mean, I could, I, I don't know if I could help you, is this your first time? And, and, and I, you know, I want to like send a comment card or stand up and say, hey, that's not, how, that's not what the passage means, it's, 
Have you ever been in a scenario where you know how to do something, but it's not your job? It's not your role. No one gave you the, the title. You don't have the keys for that room. It's also a terrible feeling. Jesus, it says, gives them both what they need, the power and the authority. The power to do something is the ability to do something, right? If your phone runs out of power, you no longer have the ability to make a call, look up your maps, uh, buy Bitcoin. You can't, there's no power. If your car runs out of power, well, you can't afford gas, so you're really out of luck. And authority, authority is the right to do something. Jesus gives the disciples not just the power, let me show you how to do these things. Let me teach you how to preach the kingdom. Let me show you how to interact with sick people. Let me teach you how to pray and call upon the power of God. Let me show you what it looks like to confront evil. He's been doing that for them over and over and over again. So that when they get to this moment, he says, I'm giving you the power to do these things. You now have the ability to do the same things that I've been doing. And he gives them the authority. And authority, it's, uh, it's two sides of one coin. It's you now have the right and privilege to do something and the responsibility. Because when you have authority, when you have authority, it's you. You're it. There's no plan B. Whoever's in charge, it's your responsibility. And so Jesus gives them the responsibility. No longer could they go to a village and say, man, there's a lot of sick people here. That's a bummer. Oh my gosh, there's people that are stuck in lostness and darkness and and their own uh, life that they've convoluted and messed up. Someone should, I don't know, bring some mental health resources to those people. He sees evil and you're just like, well, I don't know, we should make a call or, or elect someone else to deal with those problems. No longer do these 12 disciples have the luxury of not feeling like it's their responsibility. He gives them the authority. You've got the authority. And you've got the power. I know that I have never grown in a situation where there's not a lot of pressure. Have you? I mean, if there's no pressure or expectation, I just don't, I don't move. I don't change. I don't try. I don't, I don't surrender and ask for help. I, I just carry on with what I've been doing. Whenever there is pressure, and that's what Jesus gives these 12 guys. You, it's your responsibility to go there, and you're going to come back and tell me what you did. And I'm going to make sure you can't come up with an excuse, so I'm going to send you out two by two. And if you have an excuse, you've got to make it up together, but there's no more excuses. It's the two of you going out to do these things that I've been doing, and I've been enabling you to do them. Jesus, uh, with that uh, pressure, that burden, the, the clear expectations, gives them the outcomes and the outcomes are this. Uh, it's, I think it's fascinating. He says, uh, preach the gospel, heal diseases, tell everyone about the kingdom, cast out demons. Gives them a clear expectation for what success looks like. And Jesus does that there, for sure, to the disciples, go off into these villages, but he also continues to teach about the kingdom of God over and over and over again. Some of you might be familiar with Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We call it uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded one particular message that Jesus gave up on a hill to a lot of people. And in those three chapters, he talks about and illustrates the kind of person 
that would be so caught up with God inside them that these are the kinds of things that they would do. And he goes piece by piece of the kind of heart, kind of behavior, the kind of person. Uh, he talks about how they would handle uh, conflict. A kingdom person would handle conflict this way. He talks about money. A person with God so inside them would handle money this way. Uh, how would they pray? How would they act as neighbors? How would they act in a marriage? How would they act as friends? And he goes one after another to say, this is the kind of heart that they would have. And he gives that to us as this uh, uh, vision, uh, uh, this illustration of what life could be like. And then he gives us the authority to go and live like that. So how does he do that? There's, uh, there's an uh, author that has probably changed how I think more than anyone else, Dallas Willard. He passed away a few years ago. He was a professor of philosophy at USC. Uh, no jokes there. He was a professor of philosophy at USC and wrote also a lot about the soul and the spiritual life. And he specifically talked about what one of these words that sometimes could be a trigger word for us, uh, discipline. He talked about discipline, spiritual disciplines. And he, he really answered his own question. What is a discipline? A discipline is an activity within our power, something that we can do, which brings us to a point where we can do what we at present cannot do. So a discipline is something that we can do. We can choose to do this thing so that at some point we'll be able to do something that we currently couldn't do. Discipline is in fact a natural part of the structure of the human soul. And almost nothing of any significance in education, culture, or other attainments is achieved without discipline. Everything from learning a language to weightlifting depends upon it. And its availability in the human makeup is what makes the individual being responsible for the kind of person they become. I like that last part. The fact that you and I have the capacity to choose discipline means that we are responsible for the kind of people that we become. And that's what I want to uh, kind of land with for us. I wonder, in your life, if you were to really sit down without any anxiety, without any defensiveness, and ask, ask your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, your coworkers, your colleagues, your close friends, ask them, would you, would you prefer if I were to become more patient? What would they say? If, if you could have it your way with me, would you prefer that I was kinder? Like, if I could be a little bit more compassionate, I had a choice to be more compassionate, would you like me to be more compassionate or are you happy with this? And I'm not saying, do you like me or not or do you accept me? Are we in a relationship or not? I'm saying, would you prefer me to be different? If you were to go to your kids and say, would you like me to be more forgiving. Have a little bit less anxiety when it comes to your life compared to my life. Would you like that? Would you like to see more peace come out of me? Would you like to see more generosity? What would they say? I uh, take this uh, particularly personally as I think about the person that I've become. I've, at 20 years old, had this nightmare that by the time I was 40, 
that I wouldn't become a certain person. It was a really clear nightmare to me. And it was almost the upside-down version of a vision. Uh, the Ghost of Christmas Future, back to Christmas Carol. Uh, it was a picture of the kind of person I would become if I did nothing else. The trajectory, the inertia, whatever those physics words are, I was going to become that. And it created quite a bit of fear in me at 20 years old. And I did whatever I could and thought I could do so that I wouldn't become that kind of dad, that kind of husband, that kind of leader, that kind of person. I, I just wouldn't become that. And it organized a tremendous amount of energy for me to go to therapy, to get coaching, to read. I read a leadership book every single week for nine years because I wanted to not become someone that didn't make an impact. I, want, I didn't want to be a nice guy. And it just focused everything that I did. Then I got to 40, and I actually had a moment. I was like, that's cool. I didn't become that guy. That's good. I didn't become that guy. And I could, you could interview my kids, and I'm in another room, and ask questions, things that I was worried about at 20, and they would say, yeah, he's not like that. You'd ask my wife, and she said, yeah, he's really not like that. Friends would say that, coworkers, colleagues, people, if you just met me, you're like, yeah, he's not that guy. And then I turned 41, and then I turned 42, and I'm 42. And I gotta be honest, I'm not much different at 42 than I was at 40. I'm, I'm really not. I, I'm about the same. I haven't really grown. I haven't really learned much. I haven't changed. I mean, and I've started again over the past few months to start realizing that I have not found a vision for who I am designed and called to be. And that is no one else's responsibility. And my kids, I think if I turn 60... 18 years, and said, hey, was I a good dad? Yeah, yes. My wife, we're still married? Yep. You made an impact in life? Yep. I think I'm on a good path. It's okay. What I'm asking God to do, what I'm going to ask God to do for you is to come up with what does it look like for you to change? What is the growth? What is the learning that you need to do? And if you can get clarity on that, you kinder, you gentler, you less prone to sudden reactions when you don't get your way. You less willing to argue with someone to get your point across. You more generous so that when you think about your finances, you think about your resources, it doesn't bring up anxiety or panic in you, but you actually have a sense of thrill and flow with life. Like That would be true for you. That people would see you and they would actually say, there's just something about the light in your eyes that's different. I, I, there's, there, you just seem full of uh, grace and, and full of compassion. You're, just, you're easier to be around. You're lighter. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, you could pick all those, actually. <laughs> As Jesus uh, demonstrates through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through And here's what Dallas Willard says I'll close with. The aim of disciplines in the spiritual life, and specifically the following of Christ, is the transformation of the total state of the soul. It is the renewal of the whole person from the inside, involving differences in thought and feeling and character that may be never manifest in outward behavior at all. 
You and I are made to grow and to learn. We are not meant to miss out. God has more for you, and he wants to do more through you. And I don't know what that looks like. I do know, as I've learned from Dallas Willard, if I want to become more patient, then I need to intentionally, I need to intentionally pick a discipline that, will, that the fruit of it will be more patience. He talks about silly things, like you're in the line at the grocery store choosing to take the longest line. That's absurd, isn't it? That you would look and there's like, there's the fast checkout and then there's the lady in front of you who's got two carts and is writing a check. And you say, that's my line. And someone says, hey, sir, we'll open up another line. You say, nope, this is my line. Why? Because what happens? What could happen? Well, likely you'll be irritated. You'll be frustrated. And right, rightfully so. You could do it quicker. And this lady doesn't need to write a check. Learn how to use a debit card for crying out loud. But the choice, the discipline would be, to, I'm going to choose this. I'm going to choose this. And I'm going to allow the stuff. I'm going to allow the, the contempt and the critique and the foolish, uh, and the, it, it, I'm going to actually allow it to bubble up to the surface. And I'm, as I'm doing that, I might, I might do a couple things. I might decide to pray for that person that God's favor would rest on her. And whatever complications in her life, that God would do something to make her life simpler and easier. I might choose to pray for that person. Pray for my enemy, which currently the enemy is the one who's slow in line. I also might bring up a scripture, a passage of scripture that I've memorized, that I've learned, that I've thought, and I just might kind of meditate on it over and over and over again to repeat that. Allowing that message, those words, to do something inside. Those, uh, 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 those kinds of disciplines, to become those kinds of people, nobody is going to give you those expectations. Nobody, even a boss, will not come to you and say, we need you to be more forgiving. So I'm going to assign to you a task to go forgive people from your past and write letters to them, all the way back from like high school and middle school. I'm gonna, no boss is ever going to do that. No therapist. A therapist might suggest it, but they can't make you. So what will you do? What will I do to become the people, to become the person that God wants me to become? Let's pray. God, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on the person that I'm supposed to be. I don't want to do that uh, because it's a life that you've given me the opportunity to have. And I don't want to miss out for the sake of the people around me. I want to be more patient, more kind, more loving, more gentle, have more self-control, have less anger, less anxiety, more peacefulness. I want to be compassionate and forgiving. I want to be the kind of person that when other people are around me, they feel like they can be themselves. They feel loved. They feel cared for. I want to become that, Lord. And I know the people around me want that for me too. So thank you for your uh, invitation to have that kind of life. Thank you for the resources that you give us to learn and to grow. Show us specifically what that means. And even as we turn to the offering right now, there is an opportunity in simple things like that to share our resources, to let go of things that we've been holding on to and somehow believe that you're going to do something not just through the resources that I give, but also in me to release me from the burden of having to own things 
and be held by things. And so we pray as we, as we share our, our gifts and offerings with you, God, that you would do something through us and something in us. We pray this in your name. Amen.
saw and did. And they even said, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And Jesus says, yeah, I was watching. I saw Satan fall like lightning through you. And one thing that I've been realizing that in the context of growth, when I know that somebody recognizes the goodness of God in me, I grow even more. That's what Jesus shows us. He says, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see God working in you. I see God changing you and using you. So in this part of the service, this is the benediction. This is the blessing. The blessing is the same thing. But I see the goodness of God in you. God is doing good things in you. God has more to give you. God has more to use you with and, and more to do in, in his name. You're not done yet. You're not done growing. You're not done learning. You're not done being used. So may God the Father bless you with wisdom. May God the Son teach you about how much he loves you. And may God the Spirit help you know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen.